Howdy, folks, and welcome to A Green Way Forward. I'm your co-host, David Cobb, joined by co-host Michael O'Neill and special guest Mel Figueroa. I'm going to get right to it because Mel is a very dear friend of mine. I often call her the movement Cassandra because she has been right and prescient on so much of the bad shit that's going on from emerging fascism uh, to what we ought to do about it. Uh, on this program, we've got her for 20 minutes where she's going to be telling us about the work that Greens and others are doing on mutual aid as it relates to the California fires, at least in Northern California, because don't forget, folks, California is on fire in the North and the South as climate change continues to erupt. So Mal Figueroa, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Uh, Movement Cassandra is not a fun job. (laughs) So, uh, folks, I just I want to let you know and remind you, if you're watching us on Facebook, please share this uh, on your own page or any other page you manage as we continue to build this uh, audience and this network. If you are listening to us on a podcast, please share the podcast. And all of you should go to the website, A Green Way Forward dot org and sign up so we can continue to network together mel you're a uc berkeley phd candidate you were the communications director for the stein baraka campaign and you're a fellow with the liberty tree foundation for the democratic revolution so you're sort of uniquely poised and you're on the ground in butte county uh helping with relief efforts so you're really uniquely poised to have this conversation i want to start by asking you how bad is it uh, David, it's bad. Uh, I, I'm actually in Southern California now where we're still getting some of the residual smoke from the Woolsey fire. But uh, up until yesterday, uh, I was in Northern California uh, and dealing with the incredibly acrid and hazardous smoke uh, that was blanketing the, the whole, the entire north part of the state. You see Berkeley, David, um, uh, San Francisco State, all of the university classes in the Bay Area are closed because um, the um, the air quality is like double the safe level to be outdoors. In Chico, where we were at um, on the ground, the um, the air quality uh, is literally off the charts. The air quality index goes up to 500, and it was something like 562 in Chico. That's about you know, 10 to 15 miles from ground zero. Uh, Chico is also ground zero for the massive displacement of uh, evacuees and victims of the fire from Paradise. Paradise um, is a city of about 27,000 people that was literally destroyed completely. Um, and it's not the only community that was destroyed up there. Um, in the in the Sierra foothills, um, if people who haven't been to Northern California uh, don't know, uh, there are tons of small communities, old mining towns, and um, you know other communities that are scattered throughout the foothills area. So um, the fire started in the area of the town of Pulga, then spread to Lake Concow, uh, then burned through Paradise, Centerville, Helltown, um, uh, uh, Butte Creek Canyon, um, so uh, um, Yankee Hill. So all of, uh, so many of these communities were just wiped out with people literally having seconds to get out. Um, a, a, a couple of, uh, of things about Paradise and the surrounding communities that people should understand um, that's very, very different 
from the fires that have been going on in Malibu. Of course, Malibu is a very rich community, obviously, with lots of celebrities, uh, Kim and Kanye, um, those folks um, down there. Uh, um, in the foothills, uh, people, it's actually low-income people, people who can't afford to live in the Bay Area or Chico or any of the even uh, major and medium-sized towns in California, they go out there because land is cheap. Um, I wanted to go out there because land is cheap. Um, you have a lot of retired people, um, low-income retired people. Um, one in five residents of Paradise were disabled. Um, you have a lot of, uh, of, fam- of new families that were moving out there because it was one of the last affordable places left uh, in the area. And so you, what we had here really is a confluence of the economic refugee situation. And now with 52,000 evacuees, I think it's down to 46,000 now, but at least probably up to 40,000 who have lost their homes permanently uh, streaming into Chico, Oroville and the surrounding cities. Um, just to give a, a sense of the proportion of the magnitude of this crisis. Um, there are 40,000 people who are counted as being um, homeless in Los Angeles. That's a city of 9 million. So you take that number, 40,000, and you put it on a city like Chico, which is like just under 100,000. Um, that's like the, the again, the magnitude of the crisis um, and of the horrors of this, the horror stories that were just streaming in of people getting out, people barely able to get out, people who saw their neighbors burn to death, uh, people who, uh, you know, again, were were trapped in the, a Walgreens parking lot because the routes out of the town was were, were gridlocked and firefighters came banging on the doors telling people to just get out of their cars and run. Um, the, the stories and the trauma that has come out of this is really horrific, as well as the now week, over a week of hazardous off the charts smoke um people have to remember when uh when a fire burns in the forest it's basically just you know organic matter but when a fire burns through a whole town that's homes that's businesses that's you know light manufacturing or you know agricultural enterprises um you have toxic chemicals in the air fiberglass bpa so you know this is going to this has become a public health menace for the entire northern half of the state um including the bay area and it Mel, is, this is uh, our new normal unfortunately uh, on on that note mars writes in to asks what do you think about the burning at the santa susana laboratory did that make the smoke even more hazardous uh, you know, I have to say, I, I'm not a, a, a smoke specialist. Um, but Santa Susana was in Southern California near the Woolsey fire, um, which is where the fire started, um, was a, um, former nuclear dump site and a toxic waste site. Um, um, you know, officials are saying right now that, you know, there, there hasn't been anything detected, but, uh, I, you know, I would hazard a guess that, you know, of course there's toxic, um, toxic uh, material in that smoke. The particulate matter alone will carry all kinds of stuff into the air. And 
um, again, the, especially with the type of particulate matter that comes out of wildfires, where the fire burns so hot that it just incinerates and vaporizes material, that stuff will get into your lungs and get into your blood eventually. And so um, we are really trying to encourage everyone who is in the smoke line to get N95 masks. Um, that's the minimum um, in terms of being able to at least partially protect oneself from the smoke. And Mel, that actually is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is a, just a basic question is, so masks like you're talking about, are those being provided to folks? Like, is there any assistance? Like, can they even, are they even on store shelves to be bought with the demand that must be had for them? Like, where are people getting masks from and are they getting any assistance? Well, um, a lot of what's coming in, um, I think uh, FEMA and the uh, the Red Cross brought masks, but of course it's not nearly enough. They're able to provide that to evacuees and some refugees from the fire. The rest of the community is on their own. Um, thankfully, there's been tons of donations that have come in. Some of the first asks were for masks, and you know, part of our group, North Valley Mutual Aid, which is the um, which is the is just a ba- basically a, a few hundred community. Uh, members who have come together to try to also pitch in and help, um, especially where people are falling through the cracks of the official relief system. Um, a lot of folks were going out and, you know, trying to find people. There's a lot of, there were a lot of already unhoused people in Chico um, that, you know, there was uh, that so much that a shelter crisis was actually declared. And so, you know, people who are already out on the street had no protection. And so people were doing everything they could to go find, go to the places where homeless people, um, you know, are known to, to, to stay and to give out masks to the already unhoused, give out masks to people who, you know, are in low, lower income areas who don't have well insulated homes um, and to children, especially. So. Mel, you've described how horrific things are, uh, and I want to give you an opportunity to talk uh, about, give us the the link to where folks can donate to specifically help Greens on the Ground providing direct mutual aid. Yes. Um, Yes, thank you. Uh, You know, this is, it's been so great to see green parties come together from all over Northern California to pitch in and help. Um, there's a few of us in Butte County and the Green Party of Butte County that mobilized right after the fire started. Um, but greens came from all over, from Humboldt County, Yolo County, Sacramento, Nevada County. Um, and then also um, in this past weekend at the General Assembly of the Green Party of California, um, you know, uh, uh, greens from all over the state joined forces with, uh, again, this community group that I mentioned earlier, North Valley Mutual Aid. Um, the link that I believe Michael is going to put in the comments is gofundme.com slash North Valley Mutual Aid with dashes instead of spaces. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, this is um, the, uh, to help grassroots effort on the ground. That money is going to go directly to help the, 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 
the refugees. Um, a, a lot of us have been supporting a pop-up camp that has come up um, in the Walmart parking lot in Chico. Um, again, the shelters were overflowing. Um, there's a lot of people that don't want to go to shelters. There's been a norovirus outbreak in several of the shelters and people, you know, there's for, for many reasons, a lot of people just decided they would rather take their chances outside um, or they couldn't get into shelters at all. So um, I know like in the last week, there's been up to a thousand people um, that have been camping in this field next to the Walmart and spilling over into the parking lot, people living in their cars. Um, and so, you know, these are people who felt who, who the, the, official relief agencies are not helping. And so North Valley Mutual Aid and just regular folks from the community have been stepping in to help these people. Um, these so Mel, tell us a little bit about what that help looks like concretely. Like, and so proud. And I want to say also that Charles writes in to say, you make me proud to be a green. Tell me what those greens from all across Northern California and non-greens who are, uh, uh, collaborating, what does that actual aid look like on the ground? Okay, so, um, you know, we started out just us greens. Uh, we were just trying to bring up as many supplies as we can in the first couple of days. Um, I brought, you know, I've my van that I've live in half the time um, that I I just packed full of supplies to bring up to Chico from the Bay Area. Um, other folks um, brought in all kinds of stuff to help. Once it was, um, once North Valley Mutual Aid sort of started, kind of started to take shape, um, there were six working groups that were created. Um, there's one of um, uh, emotional and physical support. There's a lot of people with trauma that just really need somebody to listen to them and help them through the, um, the process of, 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 you know, be, be, getting to a safe place and also starting the recovery and relief process. Um, there are people who are um, working on cleanup and rebuild. So working with the residents, um, once people will, are, are able to get back in the area, um, we're going to need a lot of help in terms of getting people to, you know, helping people go through the remains of their houses and all their possessions and also help the rebuilding process. The rains are coming very soon. And so there's a a lot of also, you know, potentially toxic runoff that will happen. Um, Friends of the Butte Creek Canyon, I know that some greens are helping them um, to try to remediate the creek, including uh, Julian Martinez, who was a uh, green, uh, ran for the Paradise Town Council, lost his house. Um, uh, there's people on the ground um, for supplies and distribution. So helping to um, be more efficient in, in, in distributing the tons and tons of supplies that have been donated by people from all over. Um, we're also setting up a centralized space. So it's also like a place where people can go um, and know that they can go if they need community support um, and uh, um I can't remember the other one. But, a quick um, question, Mel, um, if I can leap in. So can you uh, tell us a bit about the um, the surrounding circumstances of this pop-up camp at the Chico Walmart? So you said that the official relief agencies or the state relief agencies are not providing aid. Uh, are, is there any, like, uh, negative action towards this camp? Like, for instance, is the Walmart harassing people? Are local police harassing them? Are people being told that you can't be there? Or are they just being treated with a kind of neglect or benign neglect? 
well, it's very interesting because even before this crisis, and again, um, myself and Steve Breedlove at the Green Party of Butte County, we were talking a lot. Um, some of the, the issues that we were tackling was the sort of the a virulent strain of anti-homeless uh, organizing that was going on in Chico. Um, there are several people who, uh, again, before, even before these fires, the homeless problem was very acute in Chico because Chico is becoming unaffordable. And, um, uh, and there was a shelter crisis that was declared. Um, there are elements in the city that do not want to see homeless people on their streets. And have in the past, um, you know, had some very violent, even deadly rhetoric. The people have been going around busting up homeless camps and talking about cleaning up the trash. Um, And, you know, one of the people who elected to council um, is part of these elements. And she was actually at the Walmart camp a couple of days ago, um, offering to buy bus one way bus tickets out of town for anyone who just wanted to uh, trying to trying to get people out basically. And, you know, this is really what's going on. There's, 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 there's this really paradoxical thing because there's so much outpouring for the, the, um, the, the victims that have been displaced by this crisis, but, you know, also um, uh, uh, in a setting in which the um, animus towards people who have already been unhoused, including refugees from the car fire, which happened just a couple months ago, and the Sonoma fires from last year, um, is also at a fever pitch. So um, right now, I think fearing a PR disaster, Walmart hasn't done anything to evict folks, although they have provided a very kind of intimidating looking security force. Um the parking lot. Um, a few days ago, a sign appeared. No one knows who put that up, but a sign said the Walmart evacuation center is closing at 1 p.m. Everybody needs to get out. Um, yeah, nobody knows wow. who put it. Um, it's probably one of these people who, like, again, they just, as soon as these refugees start looking like homeless people, mm. that's when to see um, these old these feelings come up again and these kinds of sentiments. Um, the city of Chico denied that it put up the sign, so did Butte County. And as far as we know now, they have still been allowed to stay, although we are now seeing that pressure of people just saying, well, you know, we want, we, 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 our hearts go out to the people who have lost their homes, but don't look like homeless people or don't know, or, or trying to even separate out the quote unquote deserving from the quote unquote, not deserving. And that's really what the, you know, it's very sad. And also, you know, part of, but also really political because this is exactly where the, uh, the economic and the environmental crises intersect, right? Um, we are now in California um, in a period of climate refugees. This is going to be, um, you know, a state, the state for of being for now where people are going to be moving around. People are going to be displaced. They're being displaced through gentrification, right? And the unaffordability of housing in our state, which is ridiculous right now. And they're going to get burnt out by fires. So we really need to find solutions um, to, to this crisis to be able to house people, take care of people first, um, as because this is needs to be our adaptation. To, again, so Mel, uh, in the time that we have left, I just want to share a quick comment from Jane, who says uh, Governor Jerry Brown has refused to hold PG&E accountable for causing these fires. 
So uh, no, this is not the new normal. And uh, I just want to thank you for um, bringing some of the underlying uh, political issues here, because one of the sick aspects of our system is that we we parse between the deserving in need and the undeserving in need. That's like classic neoliberal divide and conquer. And one of the, the most basic elements of organizing is helping people to understand that the, the situations they find themselves in, number one, it's not just happening to them as an individual. It's happening to many people. It's a systemic problem. It's a collective problem. And so, and, and number two, it's not just random. It's not just bad fortune and it's not their fault which is what I think our system tries to inculcate in people. So it sounds like uh, a lot of great work is being done on the front lines to try to organize folks who are going to be fighting for their lives in the long term. So thank you for the work you're doing. We need to take care of people now because there's no place in California that's not in danger of burning and like one wildfire, one missed paycheck, one lost job, and we can be them. So, and that's so true, Mel. And I'm going, the time has flown by. Uh, folks, we are going uh, to give Mel an opportunity for some final thoughts, but we are then uh, going to take a short break. But I invite you, plead with you to please stick around because after that, Michael O'Neill will come back and he and I will talk about ranked choice voting and the crocodile tears of the corporate Republicans uh, for the result there. We'll continue the conversation around the uh, midterm elections and we'll continue to take your comments. So, uh, Mel, I am going to invite you for any final thoughts. Uh, yeah, we did not really discuss PG&E, although Michael mentioned it. Um, absolutely, PG&E needs to be held accountable. They've been they've been responsible for two of the most destructive, deadliest fires, um, and now th- uh, uh, three, I believe, um, in the last two years. So, um, you know, if anyone is deserving of the corporate death penalty, let's just say, if corporations want to be people, PG&E needs to be dissolved. It needs to be taken over. Um, by the state. We need to be able to um, grow microgrid solar, some other kind of ways, because PG&E is not doing their job. They were supposed to clear that brush. They were supposed to cut off the power, and they did not. So these are all political issues. These are all things that we can work on in the future, because we need to, uh, uh, we need to to restructure our systems because this is the new reality we have to deal with. So thank you very much. Um, if you want any more ideas, uh, uh, we talked a little bit about it at the Green Party um, General Assembly of, uh, in California. Um, Michael also has the link. And so um, I'm. we definitely want to see people um, kind of come together in a statewide way because this is all our problem. Folks, you're watching and or listening to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb, joined by Mel Figueroa, the Stein Baraka Communications Director, Liberty Tree Foundation for the Democratic Revolution Fellow and UC Berkeley candidate. She's on the ground currently uh, doing relief efforts both in Northern California. She's right now uh, at the or just finishing the Green Party of California General Assembly. Please stick around because when we return, Michael O'Neill and I will continue this conversation. It'll take us just a moment, but we'll be right back.
And we're back, and welcome back to A Green Way Forward. I'm your host, David Cobb. Michael O'Neill and I are going to continue the conversation and taking your comments and questions. I know Michael and I want to make that we have time to talk about ranked choice voting in Maine and the uh, right wing's reaction uh, to it. And also want to make sure that we talk about the really the clown cavalcade, uh, the the sort of uh, Keystone Cops uh, experience of the Florida recount. So, Michael O'Neill, tell us what's going on in Maine post-ranked choice voting and the Republicans' response. Well, uh, so first, just a bit of background. There was a major victory for voting reform and voting empowerment in this country when we had the first ranked choice vote for Congress in the history of the United States of America. And I think that uh, is worth talking about and reminding people of, and many thanks and kudos to everyone in Maine who fought for ranked choice voting, passed the uh, obstruction from the legislature uh, many times. Uh, The citizens of Maine had to vote several times, or at least a couple, uh, to get ranked choice voting uh, in their elections. And so on Election Day, the uh, Republican candidate for Congress in District 2 of Maine had the plurality of the vote. He had like a 48% uh, share of the vote and was leading over the... Michael, remind us the the difference between a plurality and a majority? Well, that's the thing, David, is that the the folks uh, who wrote this letter to the editor of this uh, news, this this main news outlet that I posted into the comments here that I hope people will take a chance to, to look at because it's... This should go in the, like, Met Museum or the Smithsonian Museum of election bullcrap. Uh, this is this is a diamond example of the of the kind of backwards thinking that we have around elections in this country. Now, here we have two elected officials. All right. So b- before you go after me for going after a couple of private citizens, these are elected officials in Maine. They are elected to a, a school board in a town in Maine, of all things. And these folks don't understand the difference between, between a plurality and a majority. So uh so this guy had a plurality of the votes, meaning he had the largest vote share, but he did not have a majority of votes from the people, right? There was no 50% plus one actually saying, we want this person to be our Congress representative, right? And so because in a ranked choice voting system, if there's no majority winner on election day, you move to another round of voting based on the ranked choices that people put on their ballot. So the people who uh, voted for the last place candidate in this congressional election, their ballot went back into the hopper to be counted with their number two ranked choice candidate uh, then being put forward for their vote. And and through those uh, rounds of voting, the uh, the Democrat in the race, it so happens, won. And so... The Republican in the race, Polinko, or pardon me, Poliquin, uh, Bruce Poliquin, uh, he put out these election day statements about like, well, I won election day, but who knows what's going to happen with this wacky ranked choice voting system and just spreading all of this uncertainty and fear and doubt about RCV as this weird thing, even though it's used in the majority of, of like democracies in the world that are worth calling democracies. And so that fear, uncertainty, and doubt is continuing to be spread uh, by the right-wingers who supported this candidate. 
And so these people who wrote in this letter to the editor, they talk about how Southern Maine liberals have have foisted this bizarre voting system on the good-thinking people of northern Maine. And isn't it terrible and such a subversion of democracy that this Republican who won Election Day, even though he didn't have a majority of the vote, then ended up losing because in the ranked choices, he lost (laughs) out. So these folks say that um, the... uh, uh, let's see. I'm trying to. This is. There's so much here, uh, but they. They in, in the in the third paragraph or so of their letter, they actually say that um, their their candidate had the majority. But that's the whole point. He didn't have a majority of the vote. That's what ranked choice voting ensures. Is that and the person I, you? I do want to. I want to take a moment to and thank you for that backstory. And again, I I agree with you. This letter is almost priceless. It would be a good Saturday Night Live skit if it wasn't actually written by elected officials. Uh, but the point is, folks, we have to remember that one, like ranked choice voting, the beauty of it is it actually guarantees a majority winner. And it does it in only one election, saving taxpayer money and time uh, in order to prevent the need for a runoff election to get that majority winner. And wait, there's more because it also tends to encourage substantive political debate as opposed to just mudslinging because it actually devalues the kind of negative campaigning that is encouraged in first past the post voting. And wait, there's still more because it actually begins the process of of, of helping candidates and their supporters try to find common ground. Why? Because you, if I'm running for office against Michael and there are multiple people running and I know the voters will rank order their choices. By the way, I will crush you, David. I will crush you on election day. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's what's encouraged by first past the post, but Michael has no incentive to do that because he wants my first preference voters to consider vote ranking him second. So Michael's little example is encouraged by first-past-the-post voting systems and discouraged by ranked choice voting. Michael, I do want to give you a chance, if you have, because that there was a lot in that letter. Do you want to return to uh, the – the because there's that's a snark-filled letter that deserves a snarky response. Well – Their whole rhetorical strategy is just to ramp up suspicion of Southern Maine liberals. You know, you can almost hear the the political ad and the the black and white grainy graphics. The ominous music in the background. Exactly. Right. And and so that this was foisted upon them. But the the real nut paragraph is when they say, but ranked choice voting the majority will of the voters of the first congressional district, because that district of the state was more in favor of ranked choice voting than the northern part of Maine, um, has been used to circumvent the majority will of the voters in the second congressional district, which is the northern part and where this this election that we've been talking about took place, who gave Bruce Poliquin the victory to represent them in Washington. But like I said, the majority of voters in the second district didn't give Bruce Poliquin uh, the vote to represent them in Washington. That's what RCV actually guaranteed was that he got it was that the winner actually got a majority vote. So these people are in charge of a school district 
and that makes me fear for the the students under their care, uh, or at least under their purview. And uh, look, we live in an electoral backwater. Uh, the United States is an electoral backwater. We underinvest in our election machines. We have an outdated voting system. The electoral college is is beyond a joke. I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't like so actually hurtful to people and wasn't from a legacy of slavery. And it it makes us a laughing stock around the world. We should have the gold standard for elections in the world. We, just like we should have the gold standard for universal single-payer health care, and we should have the gold standard for uh, a program to fight climate change through a Green New Deal, and we should have the gold standard for fully funded, quality public schools and public housing. But just through decades of neoliberalism and convincing folks that the government is, is incompetent or corrupt and starving all of our public assets of resources and talent and and making us look down on public assets where we have the system that we that we have to learn how to articulate how to fight for it how to i want massage chairs at voting uh sites right i want people playing the harp and hors d'oeuvres the working class deserves a premium triple a gold card voting experience right even beyond just having the best voting system in the world through single transferable vote and through proportional representation i want voting to be pleasurable in this country i want to be as as pleasurable as mark zuckerberg's private jet (laughs) <laughs> I love it. I, this idea of the gold standard, like I, I got it. Like, I think that we should have massage. We should have hors d'oeuvres. Uh, let's actually uh, find a way to make voting an experience and an empowering one. And you know, one way to do it, folks, not just change the voting system to rank choice voting. Let's actually give them candidates that they want to vote for. Sure. Uh, by it's a novel idea, David. I don't know if that's going to work, David. I don't know if candidates worth voting for. That's, that's, that's too far. Too much to ask for. So listen, speaking of candidates uh, uh, worth voting for, I do want to make sure we turn our attention just a bit to Florida, where we are seeing a just an absolute, let's just call it what it is. It's a shit show, right? The, the, the effort of, of counts and recounts. And by the way, uh, expect litigation to follow because I can tell you we're already discovering that multiple counties have destroyed the ballot images, uh, which is actually against the law. Uh, they did it to Tim Canova uh, two years ago. It looks like they did it to him again, but also happened in many places. So, Michael O'Neill, I'm wondering, uh, as somebody who has been following Florida, what is it that you're seeing that you want to uh, invite a conversation on? Well, it gets back to this issue that our voting system is so underinvested and so under-resourced. And this is what the 2016 recount, right, that uh, the stein Baraka campaign pursued uh, and that, David, you were, you know, campaign manager uh, over that, that recount effort, that we underinvest and starve our election systems of resources and, and frequently there are staffed with these kind of patronage positions, people who don't really care and who've never been trained, even if they do care. And so a center of, of the, um, the controversy in Florida in Broward County has been election supervisor uh, Brenda Snipes. And Brenda Snipes, uh, a a uh, lawsuit, uh, Tim Canova's lawsuit against her office. Uh, Tim Canova had a victory against her office in, in showing in court that they destroyed ballots illegally in 2016. 
And Snipes, again, in 2018, has been the center of controversy regarding, um, you know, ballots arriving late or being counted late and, and all this stuff. And uh, Snipes has resigned, by the way. She has stepped down from her position. Um, personally, just speaking personally here, uh, I don't think that Snipes was... I don't think anything has been found in her behavior to have been necessarily corrupt in this election. But what we have seen is a pattern of rank incompetence up and down the line. And that has had knock-on effects. And so one of the latest knock-on effects is that you had a, a situation where voters who submitted absentee ballots uh, had maybe a, a defect or a perceived defect with their signature. Are you with me so far, David? Yes, I am. Okay. So there's a certain time window in which these people should have been notified that there was a problem with their signature. But that didn't happen, right? And so when the full court press of the recount started, there were Democrat Party operatives who were working to get people whose ballot had been flagged as having a signature problem. But maybe these people had never been notified of the signature problem, and now the time to file a form to correct the signature problem had already passed, right? So the deadline had passed, even though these folks had never been given a chance to correct it. Well, these Democrat Party op- – oh, go ahead, David. Well, I was just going to say the other thing that we have to say in terms of the rank incompetence is we are having election officials in some of the largest counties publicly ign- – Acknowledging that they have, quote, misplaced thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of ballots. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, like, oops, we just lost them. We aren't able to count, account. We can't count them because we can't even account for them. Literally don't know where they are. Snipes has admitted that at least 2,000 ballots have basically gone missing. Uh, in another article I read, they had been commingled which is to, I think they mean that they mixed uncounted ballots with counted ballots, which would probably be at the top of your list of things not to do when (laughs) counting an election of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Again, I I, I laugh to keep from crying because what we're actually seeing is uh, the rank incompetence. And we haven't even talked about the fact uh, of how electronic voting machines actually don't even give you you a paper ballot of record to be able to actually count. We haven't talked about the fact that there was one, the, the most populous county, I think Palm Beach County, uh, turned in their, uh, their tallies, uh, two minutes late. And now the state is refusing to actually accept those numbers. So they're not even reflected in any of the numbers. So I think that from my perspective, Michael, what we're actually seeing is that the ruling elite don't really actually care about voters' uh, intent. They don't actually care uh, about elections. Can you imagine if something the ruling elite does care about, money, if money was treated in the same way at banks and credit unions and savings and loans, uh, the way our voting machines are actually uh, treated and the way the process for casting and counting votes are treated? Right. I'm sorry, Jeff Bezos. Your money was commingled with the money <laughs> of the good people of the United States. And so we're going to spend it all on solar panels. We're very sorry uh, these things happen. But just what, one last point I want to mention. So because of 
In the full court premise of the recount, Democrat Party operatives issued out these forms to people who had problematic signatures on their absentee ballots. And and these party operatives took they took the measure of altering official state of Florida forms to put a new deadline on them. They took it upon themselves to alter official documents from the state and put a new deadline on them because they didn't want voters to be deterred from trying to assert their rights in their vote. Now, that's kind of shady. I mean, you could argue that their motives were in the right place, but if we're really being real here, the motives was in acting on behalf of of their candidates, right? Right. And, And let's also really underscore the fact that what country besides the U.S. actually allows partisan officials to be the administrator of elections. That's that's like me as an Astros fan saying, you know, since you're playing uh, here in Houston, we're going to actually uh, uh, draw from Astros fans to actually officiate the game. We, we don't need Major League Baseball coming in with impartial referees uh, or umpires. We're going to be the umpires of the game itself. That's that's the functional equivalent uh, of how we allow partisan uh, election administration. Right. Yeah. There's so much that is left sort of undone by the actual administrators that it's left to party lawyers and candidate lawyers to go out and do the legwork on behalf of basically their own side. I mean, that's how it works here in New York State. The state board of elections here doesn't really do anything to review the petitions that have been submitted to them, they rely on the lawyers of the opposing candidates to go through petitions and see if if 90% of the pages are are photocopied or not. And it's it's a clown fiesta. It's crazy. Michael, I I do want to give you an opportunity for any final thoughts on this show, either the Florida or ranked choice voting or the conversation we had with Mel Figueroa and the California fires. Well, um, our country is a turning more and more into a figurative and literal dumpster fire. Uh, some of the fire is not contained to dumpsters. Uh, the fire is overtaking dumpsters in some areas. And so we have to fight to reclaim, uh, well, the, the systems of government and how we elect those systems of government so that we put people in office who actually will fight for the real solutions that cannot wait because people are already dying due to climate change. And if not necessarily from the fires in California, then from the air that we're breathing or from the floods that uh, ravage people's homes, uh, from increased storm surges and hurricane power and flooding. And so we have to fight like our lives depend on it because they do, as a great candidate for president once said. You know, Michael, thank you for that because it actually sets up my announcement to folks that next Monday, the 26th, Michael and I are going to actually have a conversation and uh, invite you, the viewer, to participate with us on how can we argue and debate amongst progressives and the left in a productive and comradely way, because we have to win. And in order to win, we clearly have to have uh clarity and understanding about where we agree and where we disagree and how we can work together, even if we don't agree uh, all of the time. And it's 
it's past time for us to simply argue over the correct policy position. It's high time for us to understand the need to actually organize, build real relationships with people and each other so that even when we disagree with each other, we understand we're still on the same team, still fighting for the same results. So that's going to be next Monday, uh, November 26th. Michael and I will be talking about how we can argue and debate on the left and in the Green Party specifically in a productive and comradely way. I invite you to join us. I invite you to bring other people, including Greens in your own local party, into the conversation. Let them know that a Green Way Forward is not only exists, but is beginning the process of providing not just analysis, but also concrete tools to be able to be more effective organizers. I want to thank all of you for joining this conversation. Invite you to go to a greenwayforward.org, sign up so that you can know about additional topics and guests. I want to say thank you again. Keep on keeping on. Peace. A Greenway Forward is produced by David Cobb and Michael O'Neill. Go to agreenwayforward.org for links to our podcast feed and iTunes subscription, plus more ways to listen. Our live stream is graciously hosted by the official Dr. Jill Stein Facebook page on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. The music for this episode is Keep Sit Real by Player 2, available under a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.